Hi, this is Paul, and I wanted to do a little video on Two Worlds Mythologies. Part of what's going on in this little corner is, um, I think, sort of the right amount of alike and difference. Because if you have too much alike, it's too boring. If you have too much difference, people can't communicate back and forth. So, so one of the big one of the big differences going on here is the question of where, where, where is. Where is the payout located, this world or the next? Now, there are actually lots of different aspects of, there's lots of two world mythologies going on right now. Heaven and earth is one, um, might be this earth and the age to come would be another. Um, you look at it sort of a Cartesian frame, you might have mind versus body brain. Um, the age to come versus the present age, eternity versus now, religion and politics, spirit versus flesh and matter, and one that I've been working, for those some of you have seen it in my rough drafts, escape religion and nature religion. Now, nature religion tends to be, the payout is here. Um, there's, in sort of the wisdom industry right now on YouTube, you know, you want to work out and... Um, work on your body and meditate and work on your mind, maybe work on your financial health, do all of these things in order to, in some ways, live your best life now. Now, I just finished a conversation, a really wonderful conversation with my friend Raj, and just at the end of it, I asked him, you know, where, do, where, does, where does the Sikh religion sort of locate this? And, you know, you get some very developed religious... Um, you get some very developed religious communities, and, and this stuff gets complex. But that's, that's sort of a, one way to sort of flesh out you know, one of the some of the two worlds mythologies. Now, John Verveke in Awakening from the Meaning Crisis talked about the nine dot problem because you have these nine dots, and then you have a question: Well, how can you connect all of these dots without lifting the pen? And that's where you get this phrase: Think outside the box. I actually found a very interesting video on YouTube about this. And John's point with the nine dot problem is that you implicitly create a frame around those nine dots. Now, if you were to present the nine dots and put another, put a box around it, what's interesting is that probably people would have an easier time um, solving the nine dot problem without seeing a solution beforehand because what you've done is sort of framed out the context. And let me pull up that, that video. So, so this nice little video really sort of does a nice job in terms of walking through this and making an additional point on it. How about this? Instead of getting rid of the constraints, what if we added one more constraint? It sounds counterintuitive, and, and it is, but let's see what happens when we do. Let's add a fourth constraint that all... See, again, if you actually draw in the frame, then suddenly, oh... All of your lines have to be inside this box. Now, at first, that doesn't look like help, right? All, all your lines were already inside that box. But when most people attempt this problem the first time, they restrict themselves to the perimeter of the nine dots. You know, they stay inside an imaginary box that they imposed on themselves. And then, try as they might, there's just no legitimate solution in that box, at least not one I've found. You know, the only legitimate solutions are found once you give yourself license to extend your lines outside the imaginary box you were thinking in. You know, once you do that, several creative solutions quickly come to mind. 
Now the most popular one looks like this. And then some people draw fatter dots and make a solution that looks like this. Humans need some frame of reference to think within. If you, if you don't give them one, they'll construct one for themselves. So the way to get people to solve problems like this quicker isn't to tell them, think outside the box. It's to draw them a bigger box. When you do that, you force them to consider the space outside the smaller box. And I think that's a that's a really cool that's a really cool treatment of it, and it, it illuminates sort of you know some of what's going on with this. Now, one of the interesting things that has developed is, of course, all of the uh, the yakety yak about the multiverse. Why the multiverse? Well, why did people come up with the multiverse? Because they wanted to. If you don't give them a frame of reference, they will create their own, and so then the multiverse comes about and even though there's there's absolutely no way to uh, to look for this multiverse or account for it or to try to do anything with it well suddenly you know people express their own their own world and now you sort of have instead of a two world mythologies you sort of have many world mythologies and you know a number of the number of the questions that we have i mean we in john's work he talks about the imaginal self or the second self i couldn't find the video with that guy that was that was one of his most interesting conversations that i've seen um i even did a commentary on it but i couldn't i couldn't land i only had a few minutes before my conversation with raj but but i thought it was interesting that you know this guy notes that if you don't give people a frame people will make their own frame and then pretty soon frames go all over the place but now, one of the things that, that you might notice if you're a careful reader of the Bible is that there's, there's often progress and development throughout the Bible. And Christians have talked about this for a long time. They, call it, they use words something like progressive revelation. And you, you see the development of this two worlds mythology as the Bible goes. This uh, little graphic gives you essentially the ancient Hebrew conceptualization of the universe to the degree that... It, you really have to sort of take these kinds of ideas with a little bit of a grain of salt because the degree to which we can sort of draw what ancient he how ancient Hebrews conceptualized the world, I don't know that any ancient Hebrew would ever make a drawing like this. And and this is part of the difficulty between when we look back in time to try to imagine what they would do, you have to know that we are pulling, bringing back with us all sorts of machinery that they likely didn't have at all, which means that their conceptualizations might be, in fact, very different. And, and that's, that's really important to always think about, and this gets into some of the points that I've made with respect to C.S. Lewis when he talks about a lot of this Bible and history stuff. In fact, I just, um, a guy who sends me a lot of good stuff just sent me a, a nice little clip from a channel where uh, where Jonathan Peugeot uh, talked with somebody and he asked him the literal question. I thought Jonathan handled it quite nicely. So, but when you begin reading the Bible, there you don't have the sense that, for example, the patriarchs are concerned with the what we today would call the afterlife. Abraham is, is primarily concerned with descendants. And in fact, the whole Abraham story revolves around his anxiety over being what in the Old Testament is sometimes called cut off, that he would be the last of his line. And when 
the Lord comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to make you a great nation. This is about the best gift imaginable within that cultural frame of reference to the best that we can sort of discern it of what Abraham would want. He's already wealthy. Uh, he already has certain, you know, a lot of the things that someone at his time and place would want. But the thing he doesn't have is, of course, a child. And so the Abraham story revolves around the question, can God give Abraham, can God fulfill his promise to Abraham that he would make him a great nation? But again, that might sound strange because if you were to, say, transport Abraham into uh, contemporary time and space, you know, let's say some evangelical church someplace, the, the question would be for a lot of people, well, do you get to go to heaven when you die? That that wouldn't make a lot of sense for Abraham. It, it makes a degree of sense when, of course, you have these unusual, you have these unusual stories such as Enoch, where the Lord takes him. You have Elijah, where he ascends into a chariot of fire. He goes up into heaven. And of course, the idea is that Elijah's then up in heaven while things are still going on down here below. And you don't really have much of a question in terms of, does Elijah age in heaven? Or does aging only go on down here? Now, you can also look at, let's say, a medieval conceptualization of the universe with all of these, which is sort of taken from Aristotle in some ways with these seven spheres and you, Earth, I, I keep hearing people when they're talking about the medieval worldview and they say things like, Oh, human beings used to be so hubristic where we thought we were the center of the universe. No, C.S. Lewis corrects this again and again and again. He says, no, you're completely misreading the medieval mindset. You can read this in the discarded image because Earth is, in fact, the lowest place. The only lower place would be under the Earth, which would be hell or Sheol or someplace, or Hades or someplace like that. That um, and once you get above the moon, which say, which is sort of the next sphere, the next layer, then you, as you go up, you get, you basically go up in terms of levels and scale. But most of the Old Testament is quite one world in a sense, and of course you have the question of the assumption of Moses was Moses bodily taken up. So when you have the question for um, that John Verveke and Jordan Nathan Wood wrestled with in that video about uh, the transfiguration. To have Moses and Elijah show up makes makes real sense in sort of a one world picture because Elijah didn't go anyplace. Elijah is, you know, Elijah took a fire for, uh, fiery chariot of fire up in heaven, and and that also probably seeds a lot of the questions and a lot of the ideas that you bump into offhandedly in the Gospels where everybody just believes, well, before the Messiah comes, Elijah's going to return. Well, why Elijah? Well, because Elijah took a, you know, took a chariot up into heaven, and then, assumedly, he's still alive, unlike everybody else down to here below. And so maybe before the Messiah comes, Elijah hitches a ride back down here to earth. And, of course, if, if one imagined that you know, the Lord took Moses just like the Lord took Elijah. Well, then, you know, Moses could come down too, etc., etc. Most of the Old Testament is quite one world. Eschatology tends to be future-oriented, and death is, is deified in a sense, is defied in a sense by ancestry. Um, you want your line to continue. The promise given to David is that someone will sit on his throne in perpetuity, even when you have the very strange story of Saul 
and Samuel and the Witch of Endor, where Samuel is brought up. Samuel is brought up, he's all cranky. And now the 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 relational conditions between Samuel and Saul when Saul died was they weren't on such great terms. So, you know, to have Samuel brought up to sort of do Saul's bidding, uh, Saul didn't exactly get the kinds of answers that, that Samuel wanted. But again, generally speaking, you don't find in the... In, during the monarchy or in the uh, the period of the patriarchs, you just don't find this this full throated belief in life after death. Even if you listen to Dennis Prager in the Exodus series, who who you know a, at least a few times basically said, "Oh, I very much believe in the afterlife. Very much believed in the afterlife." These ideas came quite a bit later in the development of the of in the development of the community and their ideas. In fact, you can find them in the exilic period and you can read them in the book of Daniel. Now the book of Daniel is the authorship and the timing of the book of Daniel is quite hotly debated. Some of course uh, believe that Daniel was authored around by Daniel, especially the second half of the book of Daniel. Um, But it was authored sometime in, you know, so the sixth century when, Israel is taken into exile because those are the that's the time of the events of the story. Some say the it's maybe the second century when because one of the things that you see in Daniel is already this idea of afterlife judgment and resurrection. Now, Israel is by no means unique in terms of ideas and the development of afterlife judgment. You can find that in the book of the dead. You can find that in many many cultures all around the world, ideas about some kind of judgment at the ends of one's life and either some kind of reward or punishment based on the relational, moral, ethical performance of religious performance of what happened in this world. That, of course, energizes the building of the pyramids. So why are they building the pyramids? And why are they stocking it with slaves and boats and animals and and all sorts of treasures and furniture? Well, because... The pyramid is basically, at least in our conceptualization, going to transport the the pharaoh into the next world. So you get developed, and you can find this in the intertestamental books. You get the idea of resurrection because, and you, if you just think about it long enough, you, you can think about the righteous or the faithful. They're they're doing the right thing in this world only to be cut off by pagan tyrants and persecuted. They have a terrible life. And then at some point, you know, what do you get for being good? And so you can imagine that this whole idea of an afterlife really helps sort of connect the dots, think outside the frame. The whole idea of an afterlife really helps resolve things in this life. Now suddenly with an afterlife, you have reasons to be someone who does the right thing, even if it costs you your life or costs you the life for all your family. There is now a new narrative. There's there's sort of a break in the the way the world goes. There's an intervention and there's a new narrative whereby justice will be done. Now when you continue this line of thinking, one of the things that you discover is that by the time of the Gospels, there's a healthy two worlds mythology already present. 
Uh, if you read John 8, it's quite, a, it's quite an interesting passage. Jesus is fighting with the religious authorities, basically going back and forth. The Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and a demon possessed? Well, why would they call Jesus a Samaritan? Well, he's from up north there. Maybe he's a Samaritan and, um, and demon possessed. Well, that would account for the miracles that are happening. The people who are dealing with Jesus don't deny his miracles. They deny the, um, the goodness of the source of the miracles. I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. Now, Jesus keeps talking like this about not seeing death, and suddenly people think, is that sort of a, a physical death? Or you can find that in, let's say, the all the Joannine books have a certain amount of similarity. You go to the end of the book of Revelation, they talk about the second death. Um, you know, and this, this of course, goes all the way back to the story in Genesis 2 and 3, where on the day that you shall eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. What do you mean by death? Anyway, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaim, now we know that you are demon-possessed. In other words, talking like this, Jesus, you must be nuts. Abraham died and so did the prophets. Yet you say, whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. So now suddenly they kind of have Jesus in a box. Well, hey, Abraham died. Notice, well, they don't talk really about Elijah because Elijah would probably be, and I'm sure some of our Jewish listeners could would chime in here and we'll have a lot to say about this video. But, you know, Elijah's sort of an edge case because, of course, Elijah takes a chariot up to heaven. Um, interestingly enough, we never see Enoch coming back. I'm sure there's, there's some writings out there that I've never read where, well, you got the book of Enoch. So, I mean, Enoch, obviously, with that one statement about him, it says something. And I'm sure uh, ancient aliens and other history people will say, well, see, clearly the gods are aliens and they sent their spaceship down and, and they abducted Enoch. Anyway, on we go. Jesus replied, if I, glor my, if I glorify myself, my glory remains nothing. My father whom you claim as your God is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. I mean, these are, when you read this, you can really understand why they killed Jesus because this is just enormously offensive in that context. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. <laughs> it's just brutal. And, and, you know, sometimes people are like, well, Jesus was just so nice and tolerant. And it's like, have you read any of this stuff? Because you can find passages like this where Jesus is absolutely brutal. I would be a liar like you. And I do, but I know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. Boom. Hmm. What do you mean by that, Jesus? What do you mean by that? He saw it and was glad. Bang. Now, it's very clear that on a certain level, on a certain flat level, they understand exactly what he's saying, and they respond as you would imagine someone would respond in this case. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Is, you know, this is... They're mocking him now. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Bang. You know, people's, well, I don't think, I don't think the gospel, I don't think Jesus ever said he was God. 
well, you're going to have to do something with, I'm sure Sam will have something to say about this video. Um, I, don't, I don't think, um, you know, the, you have the ego and me sayings and John, blah, 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 blah. I'm not going to get into that. That's not the point of this video. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. And, and you find this kind of stuff all over the place. Anticipate a final judgment and an afterlife reward. That's very, very common, the, the writings that you find in the New Testament. There's this very interesting about marriage and remarriage. They ask Jesus, you know, they make up some story about a guy who, you know, this this woman who just keeps having dead husbands and the next brother steps up and dies. It's sort of a an exaggerated version of what happens with Judah's sons in, in the Old Testament. And Jesus basically says, marrying and giving in marriage in the age to come is not like this age. And it, um, Raj just asked me about gender and the new age, and he didn't really ask in that term, but you know, I'd never, I, I had never thought of it in these terms, but there we have it. Jesus' resurrection and ascension is consistent with the modulation of this tension between nature religion and escape religion. The reason I thought about that is I was working on the text today, um, well, maybe I'll just pull up the, the, the passage. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many will enter it. Um, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to it, and only few find it. Um, okay, so if, you, if you're sort of focusing on escape versus nature, uh, where, where do you expect the, where do you anticipate the reward? Watch out for false prophets. They come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do good people be, pick grapes from thorn bushes? There, a lot of these are sort of modulations of the the way that we try to gauge. They're really sense making. All of these all of these things and the and the conclusion and the application of the Sermon on the Mount. Those of you following my rough draft know that. Two weeks ago, I preached on aporia and the Beatitudes. This week, I preached on righteousness and the main body of the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the ones who does to do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So you very much have a frame there of of afterlife and after after era judgment and going one way or another with them. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the wise man, wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Also, you see in Jesus a very strong apocalyptic narrative. There's the, there's the sense that the time of testing is coming and what you do now will be important for the time of testing. Now, you can easily sort of focus that in this world and in the other world. And, you know, I was, I want to do some things with, I got so, I'm so behind on the Jordan Peterson stuff. He's just been doing so much good stuff lately. I can't, I can barely have time to, to, to watch it all, never mind treat it all in video form like I want to. But, you know, part of what, part of what's happening in sort of this wisdom corner is that if, say, Jordan Peterson reads this, he very much reads it in, let's say, a nature-religion frame. That, you know, you've got to prepare yourself and you've got to get your house in order, you've got to get your life straight so that at your father's funeral, you'll be able to stand up and be the man he would want you to be at your father's funeral. 
that's quite different from, let's say, what you might hear in a lot of churches where you'd better get your house in order because when you die, you're going to face judgment day. And then, so, but, but Christianity sort of squares this because you find in Jesus, he's always talking both and. And it, it isn't, it isn't sort of this this hard difference. And and so, you know, part of what I see in that is I think in some ways the addressing the let's see if I still have that video up here. In some ways addressing this nine dot problem where in fact you're going to you can't it's a both and question. You can't get this world right unless in fact you leave room for another. And that's my basic point here, is I'm not a skeptic of two-world mythology. I'm not a skeptic of um, life after death. I think if you cannot afford life after death in your imagination, that is in many ways going to curtail your line drawing, and I think there are going to be consequences in this frame unless you can draw outside the lines. That's basically the message of this video. Again, nature religion, what you need to do, what you need to do to work the spiritual world in order for you to participate in your best life now. And part of what we've been seeing in this little corner is an affordance of and an affordance of spirituality now that sort of rubs the wrong way on a lot of um, enlightenment material reductionists. But um, but even adding all that language, I think, in fact, if you want to work the problem, you need, in fact, to have an affordance and, and to, I think, really believe, inhabit, participarily the whole frame of anticipation of more worlds than this one. So nature, religion, sort of pre-Old Testament, post-Enlightenment, late modernity, secular society is, in fact, part of the reason that we see nature, religion, in terms of this YouTube space is, this is the only canvas that you can write on. But again, I think that constrains the box and really puts you in something like this. Escape religion tends to always be, well, this world is not my home. Bye, bye, you know, in the by and by. You have that mode that very much grows out of medieval, medieval Catholicism. But, but Christianity never was purely an escape religion because you find this in Jesus all over the place. You know, one of the clearest things is right there in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. So, you know, you, you see with Jesus, you're always going back and forth. You're not denying and, and I think actually, as with many other things in faith, if you say, okay, well, well, I want to sort of afford a bigger box, but I don't really believe it. Can I still get the benefits of the larger frame? I would have to say probably not. 
It's sort of like, well, it's sort of like reducing the resurrection to mere symbolism. I, I, I think in our imaginal participatory way, there needs to be a realness to it to, to afford the benefits of that transformation. Escape religions, goal is to escape, some Gnosticisms. Secular versions of this are with drugs or virtuality, let's say. Where and that's I think that's part of the reason why we don't someone says, I've got the absolute best drugs and the best uh, cyber VR things. I am going to live a life of absolute bliss. And we would all look at them and say, That's not really a real life. It's got to be all of the layers, it's got to be all of the levels. So I've been thinking about this lately. I mentioned a few days ago where I wanted to do a video like this. Um, let me know what you think of uh, my crazy ideas. Leave a comment. Thanks for watching.